If you would, would you please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5? If you haven't been around this summer, we have been looking through one of the most famous sections of Scripture, the Beatitudes, in Matthew chapter 5, 3 through 10. And what the Beatitudes are is that there's these eight blessings that have been pronounced on uh, at the beginning of this great sermon, the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus preached in Matthew 5 to 7. And so the Sermon on the Mount is, there's a central message of it. And it's about the kingdom of God and how we're to live our lives as kingdom citizens. And so there's a new regime coming and there's a, a way that we are to live. And before he gets into anything in that sermon, he gives us the Beatitudes. He pronounced these eight blessings. And so far, we've looked at four of the Beatitudes this summer. We've looked at what it means to be poor in spirit and and mourners and meek and those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And so those first three Beatitudes, they're the Beatitudes of need. It's, It's this posture that we're to have as we approach God, that we approach God from a position of need, that there's nothing in our hands that we bring And then when we were here last in this passage, we looked at those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And that how we receive that righteousness through Jesus is not a righteousness of our own, but it's alien. It's outside of us. That righteousness is given to those who believe, and it's perfect, and it's complete. And it fills that empty need of ours. And it gets us craving more of it. Right? We are completely filled, and yet we want more of it. And that's all called that when the center of the Beatitudes, they all revolve around that, that, that hunger and thirsting for righteousness. And so, so far we have this idea that we approach God empty, nothing in our hands, and we're filled with his righteousness. And so the next three Beatitudes is what I like to call the Beatitudes of deed. What, what do we do now? After we're changed, after we have this new righteousness within us, do we remain the same or does that change our lives? And what are we to do? It's the Beatitudes of deed. It's what you do. And so there's another way we can look at the Beatitudes here. If you want another one, you can divide it up into four and four. The first four are our attitudes towards God. And the last four are our attitudes towards each other. Towards our fellow man, our our neighbor, And this is really cool because when Jesus is asked, what's the greatest commandment in all of Scripture? And he responds by saying, love God and love others. And that's what's broken down here in the Beatitudes, how we love God, and now we turn our attention outwards. How do we love others? And so that's the breakdown of the Beatitudes. And so here's the thing that you need to get this morning before we dive in to these Beatitudes of deed today. I know many of us have been traveling, might have missed the first two, but if we skip the first part of the Beatitudes and how that relates us towards God, and we just focus on our attitudes towards other people, we run the risk of thinking that to have this good life, to have the happy life, there's just a checklist of things for us to do. But there's a reason that there's this talk of need and righteousness that it comes first, and it's because of 1 John 4.19. We love because he first loved us. And so there's a temptation for us to hear this today and think, I just got to do these three things and I'm good. But those are what is born in the person who believes. There's a heart change involved in this. 
And so having been filled with Jesus and what he's done for us, we now turn our attention outwards towards others. And that's essential for us to see today, to see where our righteousness comes from. It's not from what we do, because remember, we come nothing in our hands. There's that neediness that we have. But we love because we're first and foremost loved. We are objects of affection, and that awakens us to be able to love other people. And so we've got to understand that as we talk about these Beatitudes today. So let's again return to this familiar passage, starting in verse 3. I'll read the whole thing, but we'll be particularly focusing on verses 7 and 9 this morning, if you would follow along with me. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It ends the reading of God's word for us this morning. And before we go forward, uh, we need us help to understand it. So would you pray with me? Father, we are weak, puny sinners. And our minds are finite. And we are trying to grasp something that is infinite this morning. And so, Father, as we dive into your word and talk about these, these next three Beatitudes... Uh, We ask that you teach us, that you would illumine our minds and illumine our hearts, that we would understand this text and that we would understand it rightly. And so, Father, help us this morning to look past the sins of the one preaching and to see our Savior this morning. And so we pray this in the name of him. Amen. Well, as most of you know, before I moved to Tupelo, I lived in South Mississippi, in Laurel, Mississippi. And when I was there, I worked for a church, and our church had a relationship with a ministry in town. Uh, it was a halfway house, and our church, uh, we donated a bus to them. Uh, their, their, their members of the halfway house would come and join our church for worship service on occasion. We did several different things to help out with this halfway house. But it wasn't a typical halfway house like you would imagine. It was run by a tiny elderly lady, and her name was Miss Polly. Uh, She went to be with the Lord just a few weeks ago, early in July. But there's men that would go to this halfway house, rough people, and they loved, they respected Miss Polly. Um, She devoted her whole life to helping people who were down and out. She devoted her whole life to helping people get back on their feet. And she did it all for nothing in return. And I love the name of her ministry, She called it love in action. Love in action. And so it's one thing to say that you love people or or, or even take a step further and say that you love ex-convicts and addicts, but it's another thing to do something and deal with them and to show it. And so I was reading Miss Polly's obituary and it described her as a surrogate mother to many people. And I read several comments sharing about the role that she played in people's lives, loving them, helping them on their road to recovery. 
And so what Miss Polly did for so many people was that she put love into action. She made it tangible, right? It wasn't just an emotion or a feeling or a theory, but that it was put into practice. And so that halfway house was the embodiment of her love for those who many consider unlovable. And so it's love in action. And so this is what we have kind of going on here in our text this morning in the Beatitudes. Verses 7 to 9 brings up three more. It says, blessed are the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers. And so if the first three Beatitudes were the Beatitudes of need, then these three Beatitudes were the expression of those. It's how we turn it outwards to other people. This is what I mean. Being poor in spirit expresses itself in showing mercy. People who know their sin can be more patient with other people's flaws. Right? It expresses itself through showing mercy. Being a mourner of sin and hating our sin expresses itself in being pure in heart. And so if we look at our sin, we mourn over our sin, then we have some motivation to root it out of our lives. Being meek results in peacemaking. The meek, they're gentle, they're lowly, they're not assertive. And so it results in being able to put aside pride or disagreements in the pursuit of peace. And so it's the beatitudes of need that are now being placed in action. And so these three answer this question about the good life, is how are we now to live? If we're to possess the good life, the happy life, what does that look like? And so today I only have two points for us again. Two things that I think we can see from this passage. And the first is acts of compassion. And the second is the author of compassion. Acts of compassion and the author of compassion. So let's look at our first point this morning, acts of compassion. So ultimately what we have going on here in the Beatitudes of Deed, that there's these three acts of compassion It's how we love other people. And so let's look a little deeper at each one of them this morning. The first one that he mentions is blessed are the merciful. Those who practice mercy towards other people. And so this word mercy, if you've been at all around the church, is probably no stranger to you. We say it every week. We hear it all the time. Even this morning we sang, surely his goodness and mercy here daily attend thee. We, We sing, God be merciful to me. And so what is mercy? Uh, And and it often goes hand in hand with grace, and we can easily confuse the two, but they are different. It's a little different from grace. John Stott was a pastor, and this is how he defined mercy. He said, mercy is compassion for people in need. He goes on to distinguish it from grace. He says, mercy deals with what we see of pain, misery, and distress, the results of sin. Grace always deals with sin and sin and guilt itself. Mercy extends relief. Grace extends forgiveness. Mercy cures, heals, and helps. Grace cleanses and reinstates. And so the definition of mercy is where we get this idea of mercy ministries, right? You might have heard that around town. There's all sorts of mercy ministries. They're they're ministries that have compassion for people in need. And so this isn't a new idea in Scripture either. We can go back to Micah 6, 8, that famous passage of Scripture. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, 
love mercy or, or show mercy and walk humbly with God. What does he require of you? To show mercy. So if we put that in Stott's definition, we're to cure, heal, we're to help others' pain, misery, and distress. That's what being merciful looks like. So I watched this interview with a guy named Robert Putnam, and he's a professor at Harvard University, and he wrote this book called Our Kids. I haven't read the book, I only watched the interview, so I can't fully recommend it to you, but he talks about this book, Our Kids, and that there's this idea that there used to be a sense of society in which every kid from a town was one of ours. Like every kid was one of our kids, that everyone took responsibility for our neighbors and their kids as if they were your own. You know, he's one of ours. She's one of ours. So many of you probably grew up with people, with neighbors, who treated you that way, that, that you were one of theirs. I remember there was a man in my church named Jack Laws. He's gone to be with the Lord now. But, but I don't know why, but he loved me. He cared for me. He took a special interest in me. And I never did anything to receive that. He, he just took me as ownership of his own. And so what Putnam argues is he says that whenever someone fell, they were all there to help pick them up. And he argues that we've lost that as a society, as a culture. As another commentator put it, talking about mercy, he says it's loving so deeply, so fully, and stubbornly that we refuse to budge until everyone, including the most vulnerable of society, can flourish and thrive. That's what mercy looks like. And so how are we doing at this? So I think if we were to take an honest assessment of our lives, it would show that we find showing mercy something that's hard to do. And so maybe I'm just speaking for myself here, but, but mercy can be hard to put into practice. And so if I had to guess, none of us are perfect at this, that we all struggle showing mercy and being merciful and so I think there's two phrases in our culture that really get at the struggle with how it is to be merciful. And the first is this, it's don't get mad, get even. Right? Whenever someone does something against you, is forgiveness on the table or is there just this desire to get even? You know, pay back what just happened to you. Another phrase that we've all heard is he did it to himself. She did it to herself. You ever had the opportunity to help someone out of a bad situation and didn't because they did it to themselves? And so this is where opposite world again comes into play here in the Beatitudes. You see, Christians, we're supposed to be different. And so I want us to think just for a moment about what the world's definition of mercy is. And, and I see it all the time in pop culture. You can go back to the 90s and see it in music there. But there's one recently that I think illustrates it really well, and it's Miley Cyrus, everyone's favorite artist, right? She has this song in this line where she says, forget the haters, only God can judge us. Only God can judge you. But it effectively means this. Mercy means not being judgmental. Therefore, you can do anything you want. But the biblical meaning of mercy, true mercy, involves acknowledging that there's this thing called sin, that sin is real, and that so many problems of our life stem from sin. And if sin is real, then the consequences of sin 
is real. Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death. And so because of the sin in our lives, we deserve death. But the good news of the gospel is that we don't get what we deserve. Instead, we get mercy. Right? Blessed are the merciful. Romans 5, 8 says this. He says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It wasn't after we cleaned ourselves up. It wasn't after we, we did the right thing. It says, while we were still sinners, while we were broken, Jesus had mercy on us. And so the thought process here is that those who have been shown mercy show mercy to other people. Right? It's fuel. Those who've received mercy then go and show mercy to other people. The second act of compassion that Jesus says is, blessed are the pure in heart. Now, I, I could probably record myself and say, this is a hard one for us to do on every single one of these. Right? We could play it over every time we read one of these Beatitudes because this one's no different. It's hard for us to be pure in heart. And so one of the difficulties we see this is it is in peer pressure. It's that we have this pressure to conform to others around us, whether it's at school and you're a student, whether it's at work, whether it's on the golf course or on a work trip. It doesn't matter. We have this pressure to conform. Maybe your friends are gossiping about someone and there's this pressure to join in. Maybe there's folks at school that are being mean and rude and picking on someone, and there's that pressure to join in, to conform. Have you ever felt that pressure to go along with what others are doing? I mean, we've all been there. And so what happens then if you don't join in on that is that, that you stick out like a sore thumb. Like, why is Jeremy being so like that? You know, that's, that's not weird. That, that's not right. And so if we're to stand up to it, it could make us extremely unpopular. It could alienate us. Don't want to invite the fun sucker around. You know, if the world had its own beatitude for this, it might say something like this. Blessed are those who compromise their morals. Blessed are those who don't stir the pot. But again, for Christians, it's supposed to be different. Ian Duguid, one of my heroes, you all know, he says this beatitude is like saying, blessed are the uncompromised, those whose hearts are filled with purity. Okay, Jeremy, I hear you, but what's the big deal about compromise? I mean, you're, you're a history guy. You like the great compromiser, Henry Clay. What's the big deal about compromise? It's not like I'm abandoning God or anything. Well, I'll, I'll let the psalmist answer that question Psalm 24, 3 to 4, we used this a few weeks ago in our liturgy, actually. But the psalmist writes in Psalm 24, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? Meaning, who can go into God's presence? Who can go before God? And here's the answer. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully. And so what David is saying here in Psalm 24 is that without perfect purity of heart, no one can stand before God. And that's why this impure heart is such a big deal for us. And so what's the answer to this? If we're sinners, what's the answer to this? We're going to see more in just a minute. But it's like we talked about last time when we talked about righteousness. 
through what Jesus has done, we've been given a pure heart. We've been given a new heart with new inclinations. And so the Christian message is all about finding our purity, our righteousness in what Jesus has done and not what we do. You know, a lot of us will probably remember this, but when I was growing up, we had these bracelets that everyone wore. They were all the rage. And on it, they said, WWJD. I think I've seen even one of our students have it on one time. But WWJD, you all know what it stands for. It stood for, what would Jesus do? So, so maybe you're a kid and you're on a playground and you get pushed down and you're, you're picking yourself back up and you're wanting to fight back, but then you see, what would Jesus do? Right? We've all seen them. But whenever we think about our lives and our righteousness and our purity, we should actually have WDJD on our bracelets. What did Jesus do to make us pure? We look back at the cross and his actions on the cross that has given us this new heart. So in order to make you righteous, to give you purity, what did Jesus do? We're going to talk more about that in just a moment. But the third act of compassion that Jesus said He says, blessed are the peacemakers. And I'll be really quick on this one. But on first glance, this one seems seems relatively uncontroversial. Right? I mean, like, who doesn't like peace? After all, there's a number of songs that say, give peace a chance. Right? We, We have a Nobel Peace Prize that is given to someone who is promoting peace in the world. And so we all want to live at peace. But actually, what I want to argue, though, is that the world... What it wants is not peace, but just comfort. The world just wants comfort. The world wants to have an absence of conflict in their lives. And so if this was a beatitude for the world, it actually wouldn't say blessed are the peacemakers, but it would say something like blessed are those who are comfortable. And so the biblical view of peace is something much more than just the absence of conflict. What peace is, according to the Bible, is is the restoring of relationships, taking what's been separated and bringing back together. It's it's reconciliation, right? And and it's two directions. It's vertical and it's horizontal. It's reconciliation with God and reconciliation with other people, the people around us, bringing us back together. That's what peacemaking is. It's, It's living together in a community that's in harmony with the way that God wants it to be. And so what this beatitude is all about, it's about being in the business of restoring relationships. Restoring relationships. Peace with God, peace with our neighbor. In fact, Romans 12, 18 instructs us, it says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Restore relationships with all. So if we read that by ourselves, we might think it just means don't go picking fights with people. Don't step out of line and do something wrong. But, but let me read the whole context for you in Romans 12. And so this is right after Paul says, live in harmony with one another. He then says this from Romans 12, 17 to 22. This is what peace looks like, by the way, y'all. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all, if possible, so far as it depends on you. Live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. But leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But here you go, listen. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, let him starve. No, that's not what it says. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. 
So you ever had someone out to get you? Someone who just had it for you? Someone who hurt you? Someone who did something wrong against you? How do you respond when that happens? You know, sometimes we might try to retaliate, pay them back, give them a taste of their own medicine. Sometimes we ignore it and not think about it and just say, uh, I'm not going to worry with that. But what Paul says here, the way of peacemaking is to repay evil with good. And so this is something that Jesus even teaches in the Sermon on the Mount. If you still have your Bibles open, look down at Matthew 5, verses 40 to 41. Actually, starting in verse 39. So Jesus, again, speaking here, continuing on in the Sermon on the Mount. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. And so we're to go above and beyond when making peace and resolving conflict. That's what Jesus is teaching here. And so for more on this, there's a great book. Ken Sandy has a book called The Peacemaker. Recommend it to you all if you want to know more about what peacemaking and resolving conflict looks like. But these are the acts of compassion, right? The the acts of compassion, the beatitudes of deed. If our righteousness, if our salvation is found in Christ, then now we go about living life as a follower of Christ. And so Jesus says here, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. So that brings us to our second point this morning, the author of compassion. And so I'll be really quick here. But in our last two sermons on the Beatitude, Beatitudes, I mentioned that before any of these Beatitudes describe us, they describe Jesus, right? Before they describe anything about us, they first and foremost describe Jesus. And so we have a portrait of what Jesus looks like in these Beatitudes. And so these actions here, they're they're the actions of Jesus. And so he's the author of all compassion. And he did them all not just a little bit, but but he, he did them perfectly And so as we pursue being merciful and pure in heart and peacemakers, ultimately what we want to do is become more like Jesus. And that's what sanctification is, this process that after you're justified, after you've been saved, this process of becoming more and more like Jesus. We want to look like Jesus. That's what Christians want. And so we said this last time too, but having been filled with Jesus' righteousness, we want more to, to where it's even overflowing And so the way that we're able to do acts of compassion in our life is because of the author of compassion working within us. So consider how Jesus dishes out mercy. Philippians 2 tells us that he left glory. He left the Father's side to become a human. For our sake, he knew what it was like to be tired. He knew what it was like to be sick, to be sad. He knew what it was like to experience pain. He didn't come as a king, though he could have. He he didn't come rich, but he could have. But he came instead to be a servant. He he washed people's feet. We think feet are gross. Jesus washed people's feet. He healed them. He taught them. He did all these things so that he could show us mercy. 
And again, Ian Duguid tells us the point here. It says, our hearts are only moved to mercy to the extent that we remember and ponder the depths and riches of God's mercy. Our hearts are only moved to mercy to the extent we remember and ponder the depths and riches of God's mercy. And so as we seek to do mercy, we look at the mercy that's been given to us. Again, fuel. What about how Jesus is pure in heart? I've touched on this a little bit already this morning, but Jesus' heart was completely pure. Hebrews 7.26 describes Jesus as holy, blameless, and pure. And 1 John 3.3 makes this purity applicable to us, and it says, And everyone who thus hopes in him, Jesus, purifies himself as Jesus is pure. Right? There's a commentator, Colin Cruz, and he says this means, The hope of being like Christ in the future expresses itself in an effort to purify oneself to be like him in the present. If that's not enough for you, John Calvin He says it this way, if we hope in him, talking about Jesus, it cannot be but that this hope will excite and stimulate us to follow purity, for it leads us straight to Christ whom we know to be a perfect pattern of purity. And so we sang it just a few moments ago, God be merciful to me, Psalm 51, there's this line in Psalm 51 where David cries out, create in me a clean heart, renew a right spirit within me. And so let that be our cry to God, create a clean heart within me. What about how Jesus is a peacemaker? Well, it's simple as just that he made peace with us first. Because we're sinners, the Bible says that we're enemies of God. Romans 5.10 says, while we were enemies, we were reconciled, made peaceful to God by the death of his son. Ephesians 2.14, for he himself is our peace. Jesus is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Reconciliation through Christ. He is our peace. Through him we bring about reconciliation. And so he paid the greatest price of all so that we would be at peace with God. He takes enemies and turns them into a child. So this is actually interesting here, but the Greek word here in Matthew 5 for peacemakers is only used one other place in Scripture. Colossians 1.20. Colossians 1.20 says this, it's talking about Jesus. In Him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace, being a peacemaker by the blood of His cross. And so how was Jesus a peacemaker? By purchasing reconciliation through the cross. And so if the cross was the extent that Jesus would go to to bring peace with us, what extent should we go to to bring peace with others around us? How far should we go? So let me close with this. I've recently been reading through the Fellowship of the Ring. I know, I know, I'm sorry. But I think I actually have something here that I don't know if we've ever told here from this pulpit. So, um, recently been reading through The Fellowship of the Ring, and there's a character in the book that I really like, and he's been called the tenth member of the fellowship. It's Bill the Pony. Uh, Those of you have been around, y'all can let me know if Bill the Pony has been talked about here before. But Bill the Pony, when, when Aragorn and the Hobbits find Bill the Pony, he was owned and he was mistreated by this, this mean character named Bill Fernie. 
And it says that when you meet Bill the Pony, he's described as a poor old half-starved creature, bony, underfed, and dispirited animal, right? Like an Eeyore type. After some time with the party on the way to Rivendell, they start to see Bill's health improve. And they remark how astonished they are when they see his health improve in the wild compared to his former home. And so Bill the Pony carried all their gear, and at one point it carried even Frodo when he couldn't walk. And so he began to improve, and that his morale improved. He's like a real character. But I love this line in the fellowship when it talks about the pony as they near Rivendell. It says, in the last few days, the poor beast had improved wonderfully. It already seemed fatter and stronger and had begun to show an affection for its new masters, especially for Sam. And so Bill the Pony went with the party all the way to Moria. And you see, once Bill got a new master and showed him new affection, he loved that master. He wanted to participate in the master's goals and plans. Even though he was just a pony, the fellowship treated him with kindness, care, and respect, and he received that love and turned it into being more than just a pack animal for them. He was a friend to Sam. That when he leaves, Sam is heartbroken, right? So he's more than just a pony. And so Bill the Pony, his life was changed, and he sought to do for the party what had been done for him. And so it is with the Christian life. When we encounter Jesus' mercy, his purity, his peacemaking, it should then make us want to turn around and be like Jesus to others, to be merciful, to be pure, to be peacemakers with other people. Again, these Beatitudes, they're about the happy life, the good life. How can I have that? And so happy is the one who does these things. The ones who are engaged in his mission of engaging the world. And what an opportunity we have. What an opportunity we have as followers of Christ. In a world where we just read about this morning how in England less than half the population identifies as Christian. There's a lot of hurt. There's a lot of brokenness. And so because he's done all these things for you, shouldn't that then encourage us to turn around and practice mercy? To, to cultivate a pure heart within us and to be peacemakers. And surely if he's done these things for you, he will help you do them for others. And so my question for you this morning is, are these markers of your life? Have our hearts been so changed by the gospel and what Jesus has done for us that we turn around and we do that for others? Let's pray.